It's, it's really brilliant to, to be here with you uh, in Southport and Christchurch. It's, it really has been 15 years since I was last here. It's, it's a mind bender. The, the actual kids have all grown up into to young adults. Young adults have turned into the older adults, and the, older, the oldest adults have, uh, haven't aged a day, is, is what I've seen. It's a sea air, it must be. But, but um, you know, some of you don't know who I am at all. So, so here's just a few facts about me in 30 seconds. I'm um, I called a pioneer minister in the a Church of England. I've got a wife and four little kids that I'm trying to stop sort of growing up, the four, six, nine, and ten, just the perfect age, I think. I, I grew up in Africa. I um, lived in a mud hut for a while. I, I moved back here at age 17. I lived in, in a narrowboat not far from here, for 10 years. I've moved 44 times in my life. Anybody come anywhere close to that? I, I have a massive Russian telescope in my garage. Never used it. It's yours if you want it. It's in Russian, so I can't put it together, but it's yours. I, I um, play the uh, drums. I used to play the drums here. It, some of you will remember. Not brilliantly, but, you know, uh, and Mark Hayes tried to get me back already on it. I, um, I write lots of poetry, uh, I'm terrible at DIY. I've just moved house and I can barely m- change a light bulb. So honestly, it's a problem for me. I am a Liverpool fan in, in, in a, an extended family full of Man City fans. So once again, this afternoon is going to be a test of my discipleship as it has been the last three or four years. Anyway, it's, it's great to be here. And we really look forward as a family to embed in the church and in the town again. So um, really good. Let's just pray together. As, as we open up God's word. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that you send on your people. You pour it out on your people. You give it liberally, expansively. And this morning, we long for your gift. Thank you. The Holy Spirit is simply the presence of Jesus amongst us tangibly. Lord, we can't hear your word without your spirit. Lord, it won't come into our hearts without your presence. And so, Lord, will you work amongst us, Lord? Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. A while back, I was in Costa in the retail park in Wigan, and I, I, was, I'm, I was often in there for meetings. It's a good environment, um, good coffee. But every single time I went into this Costa, I read a sign that was up on the uh, wall, and I was disturbed by it every single time, and it's burned into my memory, and the sign was... Not every coffee bean is good enough for us in Costa. Only 1% of coffee beans makes it through our roastery in London. And I read the sign every single time I went in. And I was disturbed by it. So on this one particular day, I took a chance. I was the only one in the queue, coffee queue. And I walked up to these two young adults and ordered a coffee. And then I just blurted it out. I said, what happens to the 99%? And, and these two guys uh, looked at me as if I was deranged. But I get that look from my, my, my um, you know, wife every couple of weeks. So I'm used to that look. So I fight through it and I say, I point to their sign above their heads. And I say, what happens to the 99% of coffee beans? Because it bothers me. 
And, and this young adult behind the actual um, you know, counter turned and he looked at this sign and I could tell he was reading it. Then, then, then he looked at his mate kind of sheepishly and, and, and then he looked at me and then he said these amazing words. He said, we have worked here for ages and we have never read that sign. We don't know what happens to the 99% of coffee beans. Then, then, then he gave a sort of embarrassed kind of shrug um, and he said, seems like a waste, doesn't it? And he went back to making his coffee. They hadn't read the sign. They hadn't read this sign. They, they must have walked past it a thousand times and they were so busy making and serving coffee, they hadn't even read it. There's this, this amazing loss, this flagrant waste happening under their noses, in their company, in their time, and they hadn't even read the sign. And, and in that moment, it felt like a picture of, of what is happening in our churches. In, in Wigan, where I've been living for the last nine years, only 1% of people are associated with any kind of Christian community, 1%. And we know that because we've counted them. It's, it's somewhere in towns and cities across Liverpool, the, um, um, the Diocese of Liverpool, it's between 1% and 2%. It'll be slightly more than 1% here. It won't be a lot more. And the Church of England has lost half a million regular attenders in the, the last 35, 40 years. The average age of the Church of England in 1989, sorry, 1980, was 37. In 2017, less than, less than 40 years after that, it was 61. It's going to be higher now. Nearly 40% of, ch of churches have no children in them at all. Nearly 70% of less than five children. In the two decades of this millennium, we have seen another 50% decline in children. And this decline is accelerating. We, we, uh, nationally, in the last five years, we have seen 12% decline in all ages amongst children. In these five years, 20% decline. These are national figures. They are worse in the north of England. According to the British Social Attitude Survey, our denomination is declining faster than any other major denomination, here's what they say, and I'll quote from them, with the current rate of decline, it will disappear from Britain in 2033. Other churches' denominations are seeing similar stuff, some of them worse, I just don't have the stats for them. And all these stats are, of course, are before COVID, much worse now. On average, people are losing 30% of their congregations in general. This is the brutal reality of where we are. Jesus told a parable in which he, he said there were, there were sort of 99 sheep safe uh, in a pen, and he goes out looking for the lost one. In Southport, that's been turned on. It said there is one sheep in the pen. Jesus is out looking for the lost 99%. And over all churches in Southport, including this church, we have a big sign over us saying only 1% of people make it here. And we walk past this sign maybe a thousand times, but most of us, if truth be told, are so busy doing whatever we are doing, most of us haven't even read it. 
What happens to the 99%? This remarkable loss, this flagrant waste happening in our time, in our town, under our noses, and most of us haven't read the sign. Hopefully, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, and I certainly don't tell you anything to actually make us despair. We serve a great God. We still serve a great God. But this is not the reality God intends for Southport. It cannot be. It can't be. And so the, the, the um, you know, question is, who is going to turn this around? Who is going to bring the light and life and change in Southport? And do you know what the answer is? The answer is, you are. Because you know what, I, I believe with all my heart that God wants to bring light and life to us in Southport, to his people in Southport. And I believe with all my heart how he does this is not through a, you know, a couple of superstars or a couple of big organizations. What he does is he, is he calls loads and loads of people, ordinary and yet extraordinary people, and he says, I want to do it through you. And why is that? Because each of us is carrying seed. Each of us carries seeds that need sowing. Every disciple automatically has a bag of seed which is given to us whenever that first point of you know, encountering Jesus and growing as some kind of disciple. And he says to us, sow it. Sow that, that, that seed that I've given you. Sow it in the, the you know, lives of, of your neighbors and work colleagues and your friends and your family and your random encounters, your intentional encounters. Don't worry so much about how you're going to do it. Technique is much less important than intent. Don't worry about the, the, the sort of big events and big deeds. Sewing is much less, much less dramatic than all of that stuff. But it needs you to reach into the bag of seed and spread it around. I don't know if you've ever seen seed that hasn't been sown lying dormant. You know what it does? It rots. It ultimately is useless. But, but seed that is sown, particularly in good ground, as Jesus told us in that wonderful parable of the uh, you know, sower, he, he says, sow it in good ground. It's 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. You know, sowing seed is, is a conjuring trick. It, it's, a, it's a multiplication miracle. It's, 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 a, it's remarkably productive, but it can only happen when we reach into the, the bag of seed and we spread it around. But I'm afraid, I hear you say. You know, I hear you say, I know it's not about big events or big deeds or, or, or big people. I know I don't need gifts and skills and techniques. I know that stuff. I know it's about intent rather than, than technique, but I'm afraid. I feel the risk. In fact, sometimes sowing seed is painful. I know that. Psalm 126 tells us we don't just sow, we sow in tears. We, we, we planted a church called... Um, Gateway in Wigan a few years ago. And for our first year, we studied the book of Acts together. And in the book of Acts, Acts 13 is, is a massive moment. It, it's a pivotal moment. It's a, it's a paradigm shift. It's a moment when, when Acts and God's people and God's church changed direction completely. And, and in our journey in Gateway, Acts 13 was, was, a, was a pivotal scripture for us. 
there the was a moment when we'd felt that we'd been living in Acts 11. And in Acts 11, um, uh, Paul and Barnabas had spent a year of discipleship in Antioch. And then they hit Acts 13 and God says, go. And this early church had been seeing people come to Christ quite a bit in the places that, that they, they were. And yet the Holy Spirit said, it's time to go. Um, and... So this early church hit Acts 13. And if you read the book of Acts, chapters 1 to 2 through 12 weren't a picnic. It, it wasn't an amble in a park. It, it, there were some tough times in it. But when they hit Acts 13, it was like it all went ballistic. There was opposition before Acts 13, but after it, it was crazy. There was hardly a chapter or passage when Paul and his mates were, weren't scrambling for their own lives. And I bet every once in a while, I bet Paul said to himself, wouldn't it be great to go back to Acts 11? Preaching and teach. Give me a year in Antioch. Preaching and teaching. Safe behind church walls. Coffee and cake on a Wednesday night. Wouldn't it be great to go back there? Sowing seed generates great opposition. Many Christians and many churches know that you will know this. And we knew this in our time in, in uh, you know, Gateway, our times of greatest weakness, of, of trial, of conflict, of difficulty, of sickness, of, of opposition, of spiritual attack, was always when we attempted to step out in mission, when we attempted to sow seed. And as I wrote this, I actually thought about a little incident which happened on the first autumn, when we were sort of planning our first autumn kind of, uh, you know, mission outreach. And um, Gateway was about a year old. And my brother is a policeman. He works down near Oxford. And he has somebody on his team who, who dabbled in the occult, in fact, more than dabbled in it. And he never mentioned anything about his family to anybody there. But one day, this woman I walked up to him and said, I know you have a brother and he has a wife and you have two children and, and one of them is called Grace. And, and at that time we did only have two children and our second child is of course called Phoebe Grace. And, and he told us this story and for a couple of days we felt a little bit strange and uneasy. It felt like somebody was saying to us, some spiritual entity who didn't have our best interests at heart, I, I know you. I've got my eye on you. And it was mild, but it was unnerving. But it was part of a much wider pattern then of struggle and opposition. And more than once, I found myself you know, thinking and saying, why bother when it's so hard? Why do we do it when we know the opposition is going to come raging at us? You know, why not stay safe and comfortable? Why go to Acts 13 when we can stay in Acts 11? Why do we, as we had read to us in Psalm 126, why do we always sow in tears? A while ago, I read an article that a missionary called Del Tar was actually saying about Psalm 126. And this guy, Del Tar, um, he was a missionary in the Sahel, which is, which is a region of about 4,000 miles um, underneath the desert, Sahara Desert. And I, I know this area because I grew up right underneath it. And so I know very well that in this place, rain falls between May and August. 
Um, and, and after that, not a drop of moisture for eight months. For eight months, everything is dry, everything cracks, the, your, your hands, your, your fields, your homes, everything. And everything that is grown must be grown in those four months. And Del Tar says in his article that October and November are beautiful months. Granaries are full and the harvest has come. People sing and dance. They eat two meals a day. It's a great time for them. And then December comes and he says granaries start to sort of recede. Many families drop the morning meal. He says by January, not one family in 50 is still eating two meals a day. By February, even that one meal is starting to really diminish. By March, it has shrunk further and children start to get ill. You don't stay well on less than one meal a day. And Del Tar said that April is a month that haunts his memory. He says, in it you hear babies crying from hunger in the twilight. Most days are passed with only an evening cup of gruel. And then he says, inevitably it happens. It always happens. A five or six-year-old boy comes you know, running to his father and says, Daddy, Daddy, I found some grain. I was playing behind a, a, a that, um, you know, shed over there and, and I saw some grain hanging up. Daddy, we can eat this grain. And he says he sees it every year and his father looks at his son and says, son, we can't touch it. That's next year's seed grain. It's the only thing between us and starvation. We must wait for rain and then we will use it. Uh, we, we, we can't eat it now. And, and then in May, those rains finally arrive. And when they do, this young boy sees his father do the most unreasonable thing imaginable. Instead of feeding his desperately weakened family, he goes out to his, his, his field and Deltar says he sees it every year. He goes out and this farmer has tears streaming down his face and he reaches into his sack of corn and he throws it away. He scatters it away. He takes his precious seed and he throws it away. Why does he do this? He does this because he believes in the harvest. He plants in hope in barren soil because he believes in the harvest. Because he knows this thing is the only thing between him and his family and starvation. The seed is his. He owns it and the act of sowing is so painful to him that he weeps over it. It is so costly to him that he weeps over it. If you hear an African pastor preach on Psalm 126, they know what they're talking about. And this is what they say, brothers and sisters, this is God's law of the harvest. Don't expect to reap with joy unless you have been willing to sow in tears. And for us, my friends, we do what we do because we believe in the harvest. We still believe in it. Because we believe that here in Southport, amongst many places of barrenness, of, of sorrow, of unredeemed humanity, of suffering in you know, hidden places, of thousands going to an eternity without Jesus, amongst it all, we believe in the harvest. And for some of us, this act of sowing is so painful that we weep over it. The, the cost or the sacrifice or the risk or the uncertainty or the opposition or the lack of, of safety and comfort, whatever it is, whatever it is, we sow in tears, but we will reap in joy. 
We do it. We are doing it. We will do it here in Southport because we believe in the harvest. What happens to the 99%? The answer is up to us. It really is. Each of us has a bag of seed, unseen but real. You've got it in your lap, in your hand. You've got it. We carry it around in us. We hold it with our hands. Your job is to sow it. It's not easy, but you know what? It's pretty simple. Whatever time you have left on this earth, your job is to sow it. Not big deeds, not big events, nothing dramatic in the lives of your neighbours and friends and colleagues, in the moments, the intentional, the random, your job is to sow it. And though you sow in tears, I promise you, you will reap in joy. Though you go out weeping, carrying seed, you will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with you.